Let's turn that book this morning to Mark's Gospel to chapter 1. And we are going to read, we'll begin in verse 9 this morning, and we'll read through verse 20. We'll be looking specifically this morning at verses 16 through 20, but we'll begin our reading this morning in verse 9. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that... It is to us a precious thing. Help us, Lord, to to consider it all the more precious each time we open it. And Father, we pray now that as we look into this portion of your word that you would bless, bless us. We pray that your spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would bless he who preaches and we who hear. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you may be seated. Well, last week, we began to look here at what Mark records in in verse 14, and as we look at verses 16 through 20 this morning, we're looking at sort of the second half of our larger message here on verses 14 through 20. We began to look at what Mark records as the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, following on his baptism and that time of testing in the wilderness where after 40 days of fasting that he battled the temptations of Satan himself and emerged clearly and necessarily victorious. And in verses 14 through 20, we saw that Mark's introduction to the ministry of Jesus reveals to us Jesus' message and his mission. Last time we looked at the message of Jesus in verses 14 and 15. We saw in verse 14 that his message was referred to as the gospel of God, which we saw that he then, Mark, itemizes, if you will, in three elements. First was his declaration that with his coming that the time was fulfilled. The time 
for which the world had been waiting since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, recorded in Genesis chapter 3. That that wait was over, that what was waited for is coming to pass, and the Christ has come. The fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament, when God himself would come and usher in a new period of, of blessing and joy and peace for his people, when he would come and provide salvation for them, a blessed time of God's rule and protection, when he would rescue his people from oppression and when he himself would reign over them, when he himself would be their shepherd. That time, that new epoch in God's working of redemption throughout history, Jesus said, has come. The time is fulfilled. Secondly, and building on that first, we saw the proclamation Jesus making that the kingdom of God was at hand. And we spent a good deal of time last week on that. Let me just summarize it in case you weren't here. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of Christ Jesus, who is the king of that kingdom, in the hearts and the minds and the lives of his people. It is a kingdom that was grounded in the past and demonstrated in the past, in the Old Testament, specifically in the nation of Israel as a picture of that kingdom. And we saw that it will be consummated in the future, When the kingdom of God comes in its eternal and glorious fullness in the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state. When all darkness and all sin and all evil and all rebellion will have been dealt with and cast into outer darkness. And when all sickness and sadness and tears and so on will be done away with forever. Because none of those things will enter into that kingdom. But between the first and the second, and really coextensive with them, existing at the same time, is the essence of that kingdom, which is that rule and reign of Christ in the hearts of his people. Because the kingdom of God, we saw last week, is not a a place surrounded by borders, But it's a reign. It is a state of affairs. It is the rule of God. Jesus said that the kingdom of God does not come in ways that can be observed. It doesn't come with armies. It doesn't come with political declarations. It comes through the Spirit working in the hearts of men and women. It doesn't come in ways that can be observed And neither can you find it on a map. But the kingdom is where the king's rule is. The third thing then that characterized the message of Jesus was a call to the response of those first two proclamations. The response that it it calls for from all people. And at the end of verse 15, Jesus laid that out when he says, repent and believe the gospel. The preaching of the gospel demands a response from those who hear it. A response of turning away from sin, that's repentance, 
and turning to God. That's belief. That's faith. And that, Mark said, is the message which Jesus preached throughout his ministry here. And that brings us today to verse 16 and to the mission of Jesus. Now, we know that the mission of Jesus considered most broadly was stated so clearly by Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, whom we looked at in the opening verses of Mark's gospel here, that that mission is given, not really recorded in in Mark's gospel, but it is in John's gospel. As John the Baptist looked and saw Jesus coming, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is Jesus' mission. That's Jesus' purpose. To come and to bear the sins of all of those who would believe in Him, of all sorts of people. For Him to come and to live perfectly for them. For Him to come and then to die in their place, to absorb the wrath of God in their place. Christian, in your place. But to that end, Jesus, we find here today, calls people, calls them to himself. Just as we are supposed to call others to Christ, Jesus called others to himself. Not only in the course of his ministry saving this one and that one, though he certainly did that, but so that he could pass that message of the kingdom on to others. He called people, that they in turn could tell others, and they could tell others, and so on, and so on, down even to this very day. Paul told Timothy to entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And Jesus did the same thing. In fact, Jesus started that. And he begins his mission, he begins his public ministry, we read, by calling people to himself, by gathering people to himself, by gathering here those that will be most closely associated with him throughout his ministry. To to record uh, the, the... the teachings of Christ, to proclaim the teachings of Christ, to learn the teachings of Christ, and then to tell others about it. He begins with the calling of those, some of those here in this chapter, of those that we call the disciples. Now, of course, all of us who name the name of Christ, who call Christ our Savior, who recognize Him, as Lord, we are all disciples. The word disciple means a follower, a learner. And so just as as surely as the ones that we're going to look at today were disciples, you sitting here this morning, if you are a Christian, are a disciple. Jesus had many disciples, even during the days of his earthly ministry here. Many, many disciples, hundreds, perhaps thousands. We don't know the number, We do know that 5,000 men at one point with their families sat down together on the shore of the sea there in Galilee to listen 
to learn. We know that there were people who followed Jesus around. But when we talk about Jesus' disciples, our minds immediately go to 12 of that multitude. To 12 of those, those who will also be named apostles. See, all of the apostles were disciples, but not all disciples were apostles. But there are those who were with Christ during his earthly ministry and followed and learned at the feet of Christ and were sent out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. We think of those 12 particularly. And so here at the very beginning, the very inauguration of Jesus' ministry, we read of his calling here in Mark's gospel of four of them. Three of which will eventually make up what we sometimes call the inner circle of the disciples. The inner circle, even within the twelve, who are the inner circle of the many, of the multitude. And Mark tells us that passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The first thing that that I think jumps out at us is that Jesus, as he begins to build his ministry, I mean, he's just proclaimed or been recorded as proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. And we would expect his his initial moves to be some grand and glorious uh, event, some great uh, production. We would expect him maybe to go to Jerusalem or to Rome, to make himself known. But the first thing that jumps out to us is that Jesus, as he begins to build his ministry and recruit these men who will eventually, according to Acts 17.6, to turn the world upside down, he doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to Rome. He doesn't go to the seats of political or religious power and authority in the world. He doesn't turn to the academy or to the temple to begin to build his entourage, to gather his followers. Mark tells us that he goes to Galilee, specifically to the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you're not familiar with the the geography of the area known as Palestine or what we think of today as Israel... It's a little strip of land right there on the the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. It's bordered on the west by that sea, that great sea, the great sea it was called. And the land is, is bisected or sort of cut basically in half about 40 miles inland by three bodies of water. Two lakes connected by a river. The river runs almost exactly north and south. At the south end is one of the lakes, the Dead Sea, which is both the lowest natural point on earth and one of the saltiest bodies of water on the planet, eight times saltier than the ocean, I learned. Flowing into the north end of the Dead Sea is the Jordan River that we've seen already as we saw that John the Baptist did his baptizing in that water. 
And then 65 miles north up the Jordan River is another large lake, though much smaller than the Dead Sea, a lake that sits at 700 feet below sea level and makes it the lowest in elevation freshwater lake in the world and the second lowest lake in the world, period. Only the Dead Sea is lower. It's known as Lake Tiberias or Lake Kinneret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And it is to the north shore of this Sea of Galilee that Jesus goes. On that shore was a city, a city called Capernaum. Matthew refers to Capernaum as Jesus' own city, even though he was raised in Nazareth, because that is where Jesus set up his base of operations for his Galilean ministry. The village of Capernaum, not a huge city, but it was a center of commerce. It had a busy fishing industry. And it was right on a major trade route that ran up into Damascus, a major city. And so Jesus, in making it his base of operations, would expose many more people to his teaching, would have a broader audience than if he would have remained over in Nazareth, which is basically a, a where, you know, And it's here that Jesus one day, Mark tells us at the beginning of verse 16, was passing along the Sea of Galilee. He was just out for a walk. You know, that's not true. Jesus always had a purpose. Jesus was always moving to fulfill his ministry. And that's what he's doing here. So he is passing along the Sea of Galilee, but not purposelessly. And we read that, as Mark continues, that he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. And he tells us why, for they were fishermen. Now, of course, Simon is the Hebrew name of the man better known to us as Peter, a name given to him by Jesus, a name which means rock, which if you know anything about Peter, you know he rarely, at least in the beginning, lived up to. Jesus sees them, they're working. He sees them casting their nets into the sea. He sees them working at their job as fishermen. And he stops and he looks at them and he calls to them and he says to them, follow me. And not just that, but he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And we'll talk more about that in a few moments. But it, then, is Simon Peter and his brother Andrew who hold the distinction of being the first of Jesus' disciples. Because we read that immediately they left their nets and followed him. You might say, what gall for Jesus to just come along, walk along and see these two and say, you, leave, come with me. Leave all of that and come follow me. I'll make you a different kind of fisher. I'll make you going out and seeking something different, pulling men out instead of pulling fish. And can you, can you imagine what the responses of the other people working with Peter and Andrew would have been? 
Again, this guy just walks up and, and we're, while we're working and says, follow me. And even more odd is that you two guys are going to do it. You're going to follow him. You're just going to drop everything. And you're actually going to do what this guy says. But they do. That's what we read. And then two of those who were in business with Peter and Andrew in the fishing trade here on the Sea of Galilee, Luke tells us that they were all in business together, was another pair of brothers, James and John, the sons of a man named Zebedee. And they were all there as well, working in the boat. And Jesus, then walking along the shore, now with, with Peter and Andrew behind him, following him, now they approach these two while they're finishing up their work for the day or preparing their work for the day. The word there that's, that says that they were mending the nets can also mean that they were preparing the nets. So we don't know if they were done fishing or if they were getting ready to go fishing. But they were in the process of fishing. Jesus comes to them now. And verse 20 says, immediately... He called them. Now, none of the gospel writers tell us what Jesus' words to James and John were, but we can fully expect that it's the same words that were given to Simon and to Andrew, a command to follow him. And Mark does tell us what their response was, that it's the same response as Peter and Andrew's. Mark says, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, can you imagine dad's response here? To his sons, they they just up and leave at the command of this guy. And it's a real testimony here. The the response, we don't think of that very often. A real testimony to the power, the sovereign power of Jesus of Nazareth. The ability of him as God to effectually, effectively here, to call people to become his followers. And that's basically the narrative. That's as far as it goes. Again, Mark, not a lot of details for us. But he gets at the important things. But what I really want to do here for just a few moments is is to make a few points here regarding Jesus' calling of these first four men. And by application of the countless number after them that Christ has called to follow him. Because Jesus continues to do that, doesn't he? He never stopped once he started. He is building his church one brick at a time, one living stone at a time through the gospel. Any and every time that the gospel is preached, we call men to follow, not us, but him. He did it then and he does it this morning. Through the preaching of the word, God makes his appeal. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, be reconciled to God. That's the appeal. Be reconciled to God means follow me, as Jesus says it. What is this call of Christ? What does Mark record of of this that helps to, to reveal things about Christ and about his call to men and women. 
I think we see a few things, four things that I'm going to mention this morning. The first thing is that Jesus called these men in the midst of their daily lives. In this case, they're all fishermen. And they're all fishing. Christ calls whom he calls, when he calls them. He calls all kinds of people. And in this case, he begins with humble fishermen. And later he will or Paul, one of his followers, will mention this to others. He will say, think about that, you Christians. Think about the fact that when you were called, what was your situation? He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He says, but God chose What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So Jesus comes to these men as he comes to men and women throughout this world ever since. And he comes to them where they are. You see they're not sitting around saying, boy, I hope Jesus shows up and calls us. None of us are doing that. They weren't preparing for his call in any way. They were at work. They were fishing. They were mending their nets. And Jesus doesn't come to these men as to seekers, but as people engaged in the concerns of life. And he calls them out of that to come and to follow him. Later he'll call another one a similar way as this one sits not at a lake fishing but as he sits in a tax collector's booth. He will say to him, follow me. And even more amazing, later he will come to one and will call him while he is involved in in his work, in his day-to-day activities, specifically as he is on his way to Damascus on that road to continue his work of destroying the church and seeing Christians put to death. Jesus will come to that very man on his very way, knock him off of his donkey, blind him, and say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But I am going to send you to the Gentiles to proclaim my name. I will make you, Saul, a fisher of men. Indeed, the Lord seeks out those who are not seeking him, which is really the only way it can be, right? Because the Bible says that there is no one who seeks God. But rather, it says that we have all gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. We are happily traveling that destructive path of our own way, that road through the gate that leads to destruction that Jesus talked about. But the message of the gospel of Christ comes to us where we are. And it says, follow me. The message of Christ comes to fishermen. And it comes to investment bankers. It comes to farmers and to pharmacists, to party planners and to web designers It comes to those who are trusting in their riches and it comes to those on the streets strung out on heroin. 
It comes to the adulterer. It comes to the thief and the liar and the murderer. Christ's message of hope and deliverance from guilt comes to you where you are and says, follow me. Leave that. Follow me. If you have ears to hear the call of the gospel today, don't say, I need to wait until I am more ready. Today is the day of salvation, Scripture tells us. Today is the day Christ calls you to follow him if you have not. Jesus calls people where they are. Secondly, he calls people authoritatively. We talked about how Jesus has the gall to just come up and say, you, leave what you're doing. Leave what you have been doing. Leave your livelihood in this case and come and follow me. So Jesus comes here in authority. And keep that in mind. File that away because as we continue on with this chapter, as Mark takes us through these steps very quickly, we're going to see the authority of Jesus as a very important and central theme. But here he comes, authoritatively. He comes on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, a shore that he created, the shore of a lake that he spoke into existence, and he calls these men without their permission. He didn't ask Zebedee. He didn't come ahead of time. He didn't send Zebedee an email and say, I'd like to do this, so could you? is this okay with you? He didn't ask if it was okay to call his sons to abandon the family business in order to be about the father's business. He didn't ask Simon and Andrew or James or John if they were busy, if they had a a fish fry planned for that night or plans for a, a job change or a weekend away. He said to them, follow me. Now is the implication. Demonstrating his sovereignty over them. He is right and within his right to demand, as our confession says, from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience, he is pleased to require of them. And this is a picture, isn't it, of that that inward, effectual call of the Spirit on the soul of man. The God also doesn't ask permission to do. If he had to wait until he got your permission to regenerate you, you would never be regenerated because you would never give permission because you are dead in your trespasses and sin, Paul says. The only way for you to be saved or anyone to be saved is for God to save you. But those who are called here on the Sea of Galilee, called to service of Christ, called to discipleship, they're ready, they're they're willing by God's working to leave everything, to leave even the seemingly most important of things, to leave them now and to leave them for good, to leave them for God, for the sake of following Christ. Now, 
we know also that the, that, that the Scripture tells us that we are to honor our parents, that we are to, to care for them. And so I think that's why Mark gives us this little detail that, that, that Andrew and Simon, and particularly John and James, uh, leave their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. They don't just abandon him. There apparently is a, a, a modest business here, good enough that they have hired servants, employees, to help. And so when they leave, there's still people to run the business or to work at the business. But they leave. They leave father and mother and sister and brother. And the authoritative, the sovereign call of Christ is a call to total commitment. Total commitment. And these men will demonstrate that. Three of the, the four of them will die a martyr's death. James will be the first, killed by the sword by King Agrippa. Peter and Andrew will both be crucified. Peter, tradition tells us, requested to be crucified upside down, not counting himself worthy to die like Christ. Only John will not suffer a martyr's death, although he will live out his life in exile. But Jesus reminds us, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. Again, if the Lord is calling you this morning, if you hear that call, if you recognize the one who is calling you is the King of heaven and earth, the Lord of you and all things, heed that call. Jesus calls people authoritatively. He also thirdly calls them personally. It's interesting to note that, that the Gospels record that Jesus preached to huge crowds. Mentioned that earlier. Groups who, who crowd in upon each other so much at one point that others can't even get in the door but end up having to tear the roof off the place to get to Jesus. These huge crowds that see where he's going across the lake and they run around the other side of the lake to be there and to meet him. He preaches to huge crowds but he calls people individually. Simon, Andrew, follow James, John, follow me. Matthew, in your tax booth, follow me. Little Zacchaeus, come down, hurry and come down out of that tree, for I must stay at your house today. And today, the gospel goes out broadly and generally, even from this pulpit. This morning, the Word of God is being proclaimed to everyone sitting here, to everyone watching this sermon online or listening to it online. But the command that Christ gives is to you. Is to you. Follow me. You, sitting in your boat, casting the nets, mending the nets. You, sitting in the pew, 
here in this auditorium this morning, you who have never yet really entrusted yourself to Christ, never given yourself to follow him, to you personally, the message of these words this morning is follow Christ. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus calls people in the midst of their normal lives. He calls them authoritatively. He calls them personally. And he calls them, fourthly, to a great privilege and to a great purpose. His call is very simple. His call is very clear. Follow me. And that, in and of itself, is the the greatest vocation, the greatest calling, the greatest purpose, to follow Christ, to be a disciple of Christ. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And people need rest today. People desire rest sometimes from the wrong things. But people need rest. Rest from their sin. Rest from chasing sin, chasing destruction. And Jesus said, I will give it. And when he does, and this goes back to his sovereignty, we read that these men responded. When he issued the call to these men, they responded. Simon and Andrew immediately left their nets and followed him. James and John left their father Zebedee in the boat with the higher servants, hired servants, and followed him. And the call of Christ and the news of the gospel is the greatest privilege to hear as they heard it. The call of the gospel is the call of life, the call of eternal life. It is the call of Jesus. To the dead man in the tomb, come out. It's the call, as we'll see a little later, to Jairus's little deceased girl. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Arise from the dead. That's the call. It's the call to peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the call to rest that only God can give. And it is a call to a great privilege, but it is also a call to a great purpose. As we see it here this morning, Jesus' call to these men, and indeed his call to all of us, is the call to not just come, not just be refreshed, not just rest, but the call to be his witnesses to the world. As Peter said, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Those whom Christ calls, he calls not just to follow me, but as he calls them here, he calls them to be made fishers of men. To be transformed into witnesses of Christ and of what he is, what he did, what he does. Be transformed into proclaimers of the gospel, displayers of the love of God. That is the calling. To throw the net of the gospel into the sea of human misery and hopelessness and darkness and death and see people delivered out of all of that.
And it's a blessed vocation to which they are called. It is a blessed vocation to which you are called, to which I am called. The Apostle Paul, quoting Isaiah, said how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Proverbs 11.30 says, He who wins souls is wise. And this is not just the call to Simon and Andrew and James and John. Jesus' ministry begins with, with calling people whom he will make to be fishers of men. And it ends at the other end of Jesus' ministry with him commanding these, those same men and the church that they represent and which we are all part of now, the call to that church to go into all the world and to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And Jesus gives the church the ongoing task of making disciples of all nations. To themselves call men and women to follow Christ, that he might make them to be fishers of men as well. The call to follow Christ is the greatest blessing imaginable, beloved. If you've received it, prayerfully you know that. And those of you who have received it, and by God's doing, heeded that call, rejoice in the Lord this morning. Rejoice that you have been called out of darkness and into light. Rejoice that you have been made into a disciple. That you are being made daily into a disciple. That you've been called to Christ, to follow Christ, to learn of Christ, to have joy in Christ. Those of you who have not heard that call, who have not responded to that call, who have not responded to the call, follow me by leaving all, as it were, and following Christ. Do it. Do it today. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of heaven and earth, calls you and says, follow me. Even as he called these men at the very beginning of his ministry, the first act we have of his public ministry is him going and calling these men. And he is still doing it today. Follow me. Let us all heed that call. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take these words and that you would use them for your kingdom, for your glory. We pray, Father, that if there are any hearing this today who have not followed you, that you, by your grace, would grant to them repentance, that you would give to them faith, that they may follow Christ. For those of us who are following Christ, who have been given that gift of faith, Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in the knowledge of what we have received, that pearl of great inestimable value, 
that is ours freely in Christ Jesus. And we pray that we would seek to be faithful disciples, sold-out disciples, Lord, that we would follow Christ above all. We pray that your Spirit would help us, for we're weak. We still, Lord, have that inclination to follow ourselves, to follow our own path. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we seek to follow Christ in all things. May he receive glory. May he be exalted. And we ask it in his name. Amen.